So last week we started a series called The Beginning. Sorry, I'm not one for the lectern. <laughs> last week we started a series called The Beginning um, because we wanted to explore some of these early chapters, chapters of Genesis that exist right there at the beginning of our Bible. Because as we discovered last week, what we believe about ourselves really matters. Uh, if you weren't here last week, I encourage you to uh, check out the sermon online. Uh, we talked about how the, the creation story that we see in the Bible versus maybe even some of the other creation myths at the time, how if you were to believe one and believe the other, how your perspective of yourself, your perspective of others, your perspective of the earth, and your perspective of God would so significantly shift what we believe about ourselves, what we believe about the world, what we believe about God actually matters. And this is really true when it comes to what it means for us to be human, but also about the way that we relate to one another, which is what we're going to explore today. In particular, the relationship between men and women. So I was a little nervous coming up to talk about this today, right? Because like last week, we are part of a church that I'm sure carries multiple perspectives on the relationship between men and women. And that's okay. That's okay. But in case you weren't here last week, I do want to remind us of a couple of things that we want to focus on during this particular series. First of all, this series is not about embracing or promoting a specific human eunuch. That's a way of interpreting scripture. So for those of you who care about this, some people are going to be, are you complementarian? Are you egalitarian? Okay, for those of you who don't care about that, you're just like, they're words. I don't care, right? But that's not the point of today, all right? That's not the point. What we are looking for as we explore these early texts is timeless revelation, timeless truth that speaks into our value, right, of, as human, but also into our relationship between men and women. And in particular for today, I want to note something. As we explore Genesis chapter 2, it's really important to understand that this story that we're reading today is trying, isn't trying to say everything, okay? It's trying to teach us something. Now, this is really, really important because in a lot of the dialogue that we have today around controversial issues, someone will say something and then the natural response will be, but what about, boop, 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 boop. but what about in the Bible where it says, boop, 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 boop. yes, I acknowledge there is more to the Bible than we're talking about today. And usually there is more perspective and more nuance than any statement anyone could ever make about any controversial issue. So what I'm going to invite you to do today is just listen to what is shared. That's all. And discover if there's something true, beautiful, timeless that it has to teach us, because I believe that is what the author intended. And so one of the ways that the Bible addresses or God addresses, should I say, the relationship between men and women is here in Genesis chapter 2. And it's a challenge to how we see each other. And we'll learn from the very beginning of this narrative that there is a loneliness that needs addressing within us. And I want to say this too. Today's message isn't just about marriage, okay? Because again, that could be the assumption. This is just about marriage. It isn't. This is about how we relate to each other at a fundamental level. Okay, again, before sin entered the story, before insecurity, before suspicion, before competition, before shame, as is noted later in the story. So, if you can, 
try your best to suspend for a moment maybe that intellectual mind and just listen and enjoy what this story has to offer us today from Genesis chapter 2. Here we go. The Lord God said, this is after he had created everything. Good, 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 very good, he has said about creation. And then he said in verse 18 of chapter 2, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. This is really important. All throughout Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2, but particularly chapter 1, we have this refrain, it is good. I created and it is good. I loaded this with potential and it is good. It is good. And then he created man. And in that first Genesis 1, it talks about creating man and women in his image. And then suddenly it's very good. As we enter Genesis chapter 2, we get that kind of second narrative of creation. And we have Adam there, Adam, as we learnt last week, the dirt man. And he's there doing meaningful work in the garden. And yet the first thing that God says is not good, and this should stand out to us, after everything has been good, 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 suddenly the first thing that God identifies that is not good with this creation is that the man is alone. So right here from the beginning, before sin has entered the story, mind you, God says something is not good. He says that it is not good for this man, Adam, to be alone. And I, I know this can, this can shake us a little bit, but, you know, give me a little margin here. Adam is there. He's got meaningful work to, to do. Earth is filled with potential. Humanity was the pinnacle of creation. This is the stuff we spoke about last week. It's Adam and God and creation, and yet something was still missing. Something wasn't good. It's almost like, dare I say it, God wasn't enough. Now, that could be controversial. Hey, I'm hearing, look at those eyes. I see those eyes. I'm just telling you, I'm just telling you what's written there, right? Now, you might be, but what about, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, I think we dealt with that earlier, right? All right. But right here in the narrative, in the story at the beginning, the writer's trying to make a point. That even in this perfect but active creation, something wasn't good. It wasn't good for man to be alone. There was something else that this dirt man needed in order to thrive as one who was created by God. And the truth behind this is that people need people. People need people. As much as our society promotes individualization, and we hear this all the time, you have everything that you need. You are enough. You know, these are the kind of narratives we hear, right? And again, to a certain extent, hey, there is value, worth, and the image of God in each person. You have the ability to pursue God as an individual. These things are true, but something deep inside of the way that we were created is not meant for aloneness. We need other people. And we see this and we feel this and we know this, right, as humans. And we find both healthy and very unhealthy expressions to fulfill this crave, right? We can find healthy connections where there is meaningful and wholesome connection with other humans, where there is a deep connection and commitment and valuing of each other. And then we see expressions of this that we know are deeply unhealthy, unhealthy, you know, abusive, manipulative. Maybe it's temporary and not valued. But Either way, there is something inside of us that pushes away from this aloneness that God knew was not good. And that's what he wants to address. 
And so he does something really interesting next. I don't know if you know how weird this is. This is a little bit weird, but let's just go in there because it's lots of fun. The Lord said, it's not good for the man to be alone. We know this. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. I just, I, I, for some reason, I can just picture this. I picture them lining up. It's like, you shall be dog. You know, like, like you're just, just bizarre. Like, you know, just every bird comes. It's like, you shall be bird. I've already got bird. I need subcategories. Anyway, no, there's this sense of like, you know, I just, like, what a fascinating thing. It's like, God is like, hey, it's not good for man to be alone. Let's bring the animals. All right. Let's see how this is going to go down. So they're lining up. He's naming them all. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So it's very deliberate on the part of the writer here, basically saying this aloneness, right, is not good. And then the animals come. It's very important to understand that the animals, despite their diversity, despite him giving them names, were not the suitable helper. It's really important to understand. Now, don't get me wrong. There's people who love animals, right? And they're great companions. And I'm not saying that they're not okay, but I just want to make something clear that kind of the author makes clear is just hanging out with a a piece of beef is not going to fulfill that loneliness. Yeah? That's not going to actually satisfy to the extent of what we need in order to thrive as humans. Yes, we need companionship. Um, but actually, in the case of animals, it isn't. It's just about usefulness. And the writer goes to great lengths to communicate that animals did not fit the requirement of a suitable helper. And later, a lot of commentators and people would reflect and, and, and point out something that I think we all know, which is actually animals, as wonderful and as amazing as they are, they actually don't carry the image of God the way that other humans do. Like, humans are set apart from the rest of creation. They were the tov meod, the very good, right? And so as much as animals are great, that wasn't going to stop the loneliness. So then God tries something else. So, again, that's an important word, so. Yeah? All right. So in light of this, God, the Lord God caused the man, Adam, to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs, I'll talk about that later, and then closed up the place with flesh. I'll talk about that later too. I'm going to talk about it a lot. Here we go. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib that he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. That's Isha, for she was taken out of man, Ish. So the different word for man here than Adam here. Yeah? Okay, we've got Isha and Ish. And so essentially Adam's going to put together a nice little bit of pickup poetry there uh, around this sense of kind of like, oh man, like she is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. This is what I need. Now a couple of little details here. I just because I just find it fascinating. It says here that the Lord took one of the man's ribs. I know that people have made a big deal out of like ribs. I remember there was a rumor when I was a teenager that men had one less rib. Has anyone ever come across that rumor? Eh, it's just not, no, no. Anyway, the word, just so you know, in Hebrew, the word isn't rib. It's actually the word round, the round. It's actually the word that is used to describe the shape of Noah's Ark. Yeah? 
Uh, so, so it's just me, it's the word round, okay? It's not actually a rib. They've just tried to kind of go, well, the, the arc was round and it's kind of rib-shaped. You kind of get that sense. And so they substitute the word in their rib. But it's just important to know round or curved. So he took this round, he took this curved, right, out of Adam and he used it to fashion the woman, okay? Uh, there was a part of Adam, you could say, in a poetic sense, that needed to be reshaped. He took this round out of the man and there was a, a part of him that needed to be reshaped in order to find this suitable helper. And again, when Adam sees who would be later called Eve, when Ish sees uh, Isha, he says, okay, now I know what I was missing. Now I realize that this is a suitable helper for me. Now I love the little detail here, and it's easy to miss, where it says God took one of the man's, I'm going to say ribs, but we know it's round, okay? He took one of the man's ribs, he took this piece of the man, and then he closed up the place with flesh. I love this, right? Now, again, it's a detail that we can so often skip over, right? And you might be like, well, that was convenient of God, so he wouldn't bleed out, you know? Like, but but that's, <laughs> that's not what's going on here. Like, there's, there's this, God took something of the man, and then he closed up the space such that the man wouldn't have noticed it was gone, okay? It's a detail that highlights the fact that God was closing up the part that he had taken. Something was taken out, and then almost for a moment in this story, hidden from the man. And that why, is why I love Adam's, we'll call him Adam's response here, when he saw his suitable helper, he suddenly realized, right, that there was a part of him that was found fulfilled in the other. Now, important things to realize here. Sometimes we don't know something is missing until we miss the missing part, okay? That's a little bit of the poetry that is going on here. But I want to note here that I'm not just talking about marriage. Again, right? Because while I'm adopting the language and the kind of narrative of Genesis 2, there is a language that exists within our society of this idea of incompleteness, that if you are not married, that you are somehow incomplete. I'm adopting this language, but we need to be very careful with this, right? What this is speaking to, right, is something to do with what it means to be human and the way that we relate to each other not just about marriage. Because this language of incompleteness has been deeply destructive for a whole lot of people who may find themselves in various situations where that simply does not turn out. We do not want this to become a point of shame or disappointment when what God was wanting for the man was for him to not feel alone. How tragic would it be if we were to turn the not good of aloneness into a teaching that only perpetuated that truth? Oh, shocking, yeah? So let's be very careful, very, very careful with this. But nevertheless, in this story, he sees his partner and he says, bone of bone, flesh of flesh. Now, there's two aspects to this. One is you and I are made of the same stuff, right? The animals couldn't do that. You and I were made of the same stuff. But there's also some beauty in here because in the Hebrew, the, the word bone is used synonymously with the word for strength and flesh is synonymous with that word for weakness. You are the strength of my strength. You are the weakness of my weakness. And we're going to come to that a little bit later. So God takes this round in this story 
takes this curve and he makes a woman. And then this woman, as far as this narrative concerned, is the part that was missing in man, that he didn't even know it was missing. It's a beautiful picture. But I remind us that even Jesus dignifies singleness by his example and teaching. All right? So let's not confuse one truth with another. But what the writer of Genesis, there you go, I've got that there. What the writer of Genesis wants to say is that only when male and female are in partnership, partnership, do you see humanity in its fullness. When, when women and men are in partnership, this is the antithesis, the antidote to that aloneness that was not good. How are we feeling? We feeling all right? We're a bit nervous? No stones have been thrown yet? Good, good, good. Take it up with the right of Genesis. All right? Now, let's push this a little bit further. Now, again, there's going to be some people here who are, have done rigorous study and you're going to be tempted to place this type of teaching in one camp or the other, complementarian, egalitarian. Each of these fall flat at some point in the scriptures. Otherwise, it wouldn't be debated. <laughs> okay? We don't debate things, right, that are clear-cut, all right? But I encourage you, don't do with this. Look at what God is trying to say about our worth and value from the very beginning. Genesis holds all this in tension. Now, let's go back to here. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper, ezer konegdo, suitable for him in the Hebrew. Now, uh, you would have read this potentially a number of times and you've seen that suitable helper. Now, this particular word has been really poorly translated in a number of different ways and it's actually quite weak and rife with misinterpretation because when we think of helper, we think of maybe sidekick or maybe we think of helper and we think of the helper that we have who isn't all that helpful or whatever it might be. We bring our own interpretations into such words, right? And we misconstrue them and they can so easily... Uh, grow into something that they are not. But here in the Hebrew, ezer kenigdo, right? And this word means the help or the strength that is against or in opposition to. You could translate it the help that opposes. Now you're going like, help that opposes. I've experienced that all right. No, no, no. Wait, wait for it. All right, wait for it. This is going to make a little bit more sense. This is how the helper is described. It is a strength that actually comes against, that works in opposition to the ish. The ishah is a strength that works in opposition to the ish. And so it's really, really important that this isn't just some sort of helper. This is a, a constructive tension. In Psalm 121, where it's described, um, I lift up to my eyes into the hills. Where does my help come from? It is this same word. And they're describing God, right? Isa kenigdo. Where does my help come from? The help comes from the Lord, the creator of heaven and earth. And so to help us understand what this suitable helper uh, is, I want to talk about ballroom dancing. Now, uh, early in my uni years, I had a wonderful girlfriend called Megan. Uh, yes, my now wife. Um, and, uh, 
And I wanted to take every possible opportunity I could to spend time with her because she was studying medicine um, and, and I was, I don't know what I was doing. I was doing other stuff, studying arts, so really that was my excuse. But, but there's, there's like, you know, she was definitely busy and so I was the one who had the scope to try and do my best to spend time with her. And while we were at uni, um, at, at Monash Uni, there was an opportunity to do swing dancing. Now, I'm not much of a dancer. I really am not. But, but I was like, still it's an excuse to spend time with Megs and so we would spend uh, once a week... Uh, learning swing dancing, you know, like kind of like kicking your feet and like spins and stuff. It was great. It was great. Always comes out at weddings. And um, anyway, so we did some swing dancing and then we did some rock and roll dancing uh, and then we did some ballroom dancing. And so we learnt, you know, some of some, you know, some quick step and we learnt um, some cha-cha. That's never coming out. Um, but there's, you know, we, we learnt these things regardless. But the thing that I learnt the most during the process of learning how to dance was the importance of what's called the frame. Now, the frame is this. Just like they're doing up there. I can hold a mic like this. This is great. This is the frame. Okay. Now, what happens is when you're partnered with someone and you're dancing, you both hold the frame against each other, just like this partner. The frame is essential in order to move as one. I'm going to demonstrate here with no one. All right? So let's just say that we're going to do a nice little dance here. Okay, I'm going around. All right, and my partner is moving with me. Now, the frame is really, really important because regardless of who leads, right, the frame is what keeps us together in motion. If the two hands that are touching at that point, if there's no pushback from your partner, what happens is I push my hand like this, all right, and Megan doesn't move, and I just stumble over her, right? It only works when both people are pushing against each other appropriately that you move as one. And I could do anything in this case. I could move to the left, to the right. It would not matter because the frame is solid. When you're teaching people how to dance early on, you don't have to worry about the footwork. All you do is teach them the frame and the footwork just follows. Because once the top and the frame is set together, they'll just go where you go. This is an example of Isa Kenigdo, right? The strength that is in opposition, right? Without that strength that is in opposition, dancing doesn't work, and neither does humanity. For life to thrive, there needs to be a tension. There needs to be this, what I'm calling, a constructive resistance so that we don't fall over. There needs to be a constructive resistance in our lives to destroy perhaps our inbuilt echo chambers where we just get reiterated what we think, where there is no opposition, where there is no context, where everyone thinks the same way that I do. We need people to think differently. It is essential. And so let's get a little bit dangerous and let's talk a little bit of social commentary and history. There have been various forms of feminism that have sought to tear men down, right? We know these. I'm not going to go into detail, but we know that this can be true. Various forms, not all, but there are. We're also aware that men, historically, in many cases, have torn women down, right? I don't think these things are controversial, okay? We know that this takes place. One seeking to dominate at the expense of the other, yeah? At the expense of the other. Whereas what we have here, literally written millennia ago, right? Or we think we're all so smart, us modern times. Literally millennia ago, God is talking about this 
is a connecto, that men and women are supposed to exist in order to be the strength that resists to one another, not just in marriage, by the way, but as part of what it means to thrive as humanity. Our creator made us to constructively hold each other And the rabbis, just in case you think this is a Gavin thing, it's not a Gavin thing, the rabbis would describe it as two planks that pushed against each other like this, forming an A-frame, forming a strength. That's how they describe this relationship between the ish and the isha, this balanced strength. But in case that doesn't resonate with you, think about what uh, Mitch Hedberg, the comedian, had to say. He said, my belt holds up my pants and my pants have belt loops that hold up the belt. I really don't know what's going on down there. Who is the real hero? I love it. it, it like the more you think about it, the more it will blow your mind. <laughs> but this is it, right? This is what God created the relationship between men and women to be. And in the case of Genesis chapter 2, she is the help that opposes the necessary ally to Adam in order to thrive rather than experience aloneness, which was not good. This was a revolutionary truth for God's people to adopt. What they believe about themselves and each other matters. And I wonder even if here today as we revisit this, it is a little bit revolutionary for us too in the face of a world that might say otherwise. We recognise that this world is broken. Yes, in Genesis chapter 3 comes the fall, right? Things are not what they intend to be. The beauty of Eden, Edan, was broken. And we know that there can still be loneliness when both men and women are in the same room or relationship. Okay, we know this, right? And we know situations where this strength that resists is not constructive, but is tragically destructive, okay? So I'm not trying to paint this picture of a world that isn't broken. What I'm trying to do is tap into the heart of our creator and what he intended. Isa connecto is actually not a given. It's needed, but it's not a given. But it's an opportunity to be embraced. And so, for a moment, I do want to speak to married people, just for this moment, because this is really critical within the context of marriage. And my question would be, have either of you stopped being the strength that opposes? Have you stopped opposing in a constructive way? Or do you value the constructive opposition of your partner? Has that been lost? Because for those of you who are married and who have experienced a healthy marriage, we know that in this opposition that he or she is our greatest help. Again, there's something poetic that is coming through Genesis chapter 2. Because the other person is the part of me that I'm missing, only together are we the full picture. Do we bring out the best in each other in the context of marriage? But for people who aren't married, or maybe that isn't their circumstance, and that's good too. What does it look like to become, I thought I had a slide, the constructive resistance that our humanity needs in order to not feel alone? 
because there are ample opportunities for this to be expressed. I wonder if in your world you have noticed a sense of loneliness that needs to be combated. We all feel it. We're all human. To greater and lesser degrees, we experience that loneliness, and it's not good. But we all play a role in being that constructive resistance. What can you do to build that frame in a wholesome, healthy way to your fellow Ish or Isha that they might experience a bit more bone of bone, flesh of flesh? Married or not, but always healthy, always constructive. Again, I close with this statement. There's always going to be people who want to put this teaching into a specific sociological or theological perspective and shoehorn it in there. Ah, but what about what you didn't say? I get I didn't say everything. Please, I do hear that. Can I encourage you today to just resist it for this one? There'll be many more conversations. And just look at what we have here. Look at what has sat here for millennia. Right there ready for us to embrace and ask the question, what can I learn about myself, about another, about where I can be that constructive resistance that humanity can thrive? That's enough. Let me pray. Jesus, Lord, we... We wrestle with the reality of our broken world. We wrestle with the reality of tensions within our hearts. We wrestle with that loneliness, aloneness, God, that you identified as being not good. And yet, God, what we see in this story is you, the God of compassion, creativity, and love, not just letting that not good remain, but rather helping us to discover the strength that opposes that, that beautiful resistance that can help us break out of our echo chambers, that can help us truly value each other. And God, I'm, I'm really aware that, that a message like this, it can... It can rub and hurt in all sorts of ways. Um, but God, help us, to, help us to listen and hold this truth in such a way that you can speak through it. And you can remind us how we ought to respond. Because you are the God who continually intercedes, continually invites us in to your truth to your revelation, to a grander perspective than we have from our limited human perspective, from a more perfect perspective than we have in the midst of our pain and turmoil. And God, that's why we seek after you, because you're the one who saves. And so save us, we pray. From times when maybe we have diminished the value of another, We've diminished the value of ourselves. Maybe when we've felt alone and we feel guilty about that, even though you yourself say, yeah, that's not good. 
It's not supposed to be that way. And trust that you are the God who brings healing and opportunity and hope in that place. And so God, do a work in our heart. In your name, amen.